0: Uh, I want to first of all welcome everybody to the Cato Institute today, Uh, everybody here who's with us uh, in the Hayek Auditorium, Uh, everybody joining online. I know there are a lot of people watching from the comfort of their homes or their offices. Uh, And for those of you following along on Twitter or who are watching in your office and want to send questions, uh, you can follow what's going on on Twitter using the hashtag uh, CatoCEF. That's Cato, i uh, I'll be checking my phone. Um, I'm the only one who's allowed to check their phone at any time during this event. But I'll be doing it throughout the event to take questions. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Um, joining me today are the authors of the new book, uh, Islamic Education in the United States and the Evolution of Muslim Nonprofit Institutions, which you see right here. Um, we have sabit khan and then, Sharik Siddiqui. Did I say that all correctly? Perfect. Uh, I do my homework, don't I? <laughs> um, uh, Sabit is a professor in the School of Management at California Lutheran University, uh, is a scholar practitioner with expertise in American philanthropy, civil society, religion, and culture. He's been a consultant, a public relations specialist, and an entrepreneur. He initiated award-winning social change communications campaigns during his, times at, his time at Ogilvy Public Relations, revived an alien NGO in Washington, D.C., and advised numerous nonprofits. Uh, his skills include management, leadership of organizations, and strategic communications. Uh, having worked in India, the UAE, and the U.S., he brings strong cross cultural expertise as well. Uh, in addition, uh, he served as a visiting researcher at the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies, just down the street, uh, at Georgetown University between 2015 and 2017. Uh, Shark is the visiting director and assistant professor of the Muslim Philanthropy Initiative at the Indiana University Lilly Philanthropic or Family School of Ph- Philanthropy. Well, that's a lot of words. It so is. I didn't get that <laughs> so well. Uh, Shark has a PhD and MA in philanthropic studies from the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. He also has a JD from the McKinney School of Law at Indiana University and a BA in History from the University of Indianapolis. Um, He authors research on Muslim philanthropy and the Muslim nonprofit sector. Uh, Most recently, that includes the book we're about to discuss. I'll hold it up one more time if you didn't get to see it before. Uh, Shark also serves as the co-editor of the new Journal on Muslim Philanthropy and Civil Society uh, and is the series editor of the Muslim Philanthropy and Civil Society book series published by the uh, Indiana University Press. Uh, he's served as a nonprofit practitioner for over 20 years for international, national, regional, and local nonprofit organizations. And he's also the executive director of the Association for Research on Nonprofit Organizations and Voluntary Action, also ARNOVA, uh, which was way easier to say than the whole thing. Uh, Arnova is a leading international association that connects scholars, teachers, and practice leaders in research on nonprofit organizations, voluntary action, philanthropy, and civil society. Now, before Salbit and Shark uh, give us a quick overview of the book, and then we're gonna do a lot of question and answers answers. Um, but I just wanna talk about how things are going to go today. I have, uh, in just the last few months, adopted a technique that moves away from traditional uh, Q and A um, to uh, QC and A. That's right, QC and A. um, you can ask, if you want, as an audience member, you can ask a question, but I decided uh, recently that there's no point in trying to tell people, only ask a question, don't give a statement, because nobody ever only asks a question. They always give a statement, and why should we all sort of pretend that it's a question just because there's a question mark at the end of it? <laughs> um, and so if, if anybody in the audience, if you want to say something, go ahead and say it. If, even if you want to respond to something someone else in the audience said, we can be kind of interactive interactive about this. The only rule is I will cut you off if you're talking for too long, and if you get uncivil or something, then I will say please uh, uh, desist so that we can uh, we can all be friends when it's over. Um, but that's uh, the major rule, so don't worry too much. If you have something that you wanna say, that's fine, if that's all right with you Absolutely. all. Absolutely. Um, and so that's how things are going. But first, I get to do the questions and answers. I'll try not to make too many comments, although I may make some because I'm the moderator and I can do do pretty much whatever I want. Um, uh, but first, if you if you all could tell us uh, what the book's about and maybe a little bit about why you decided to write this book, sure.
1: Um, um, peace and. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. I wanna thank Neil for organizing this, the Cato Institute for having us talk about this book, which actually has been a labor of love. It started uh, uh, in uh, summer of 2013, uh, when Sabit and I met, both of us are scholars of philanthropy who study Muslims. And he was in Indianapolis uh, uh, doing a research project. And I live in Indianapolis and someone said we should connect. And we were surprised that two people Probably the only two people that study Muslim nonprofits at that time uh, were there, and so on. And so we started having a conversation about what a research agenda should look like. And it's during that conversation we thought about, we were also concerned about this rhetoric re- regarding Islamic schools, what they were, broader network, connecting them to madrasas, and a lot of misunderstanding, uh, probably in, m- mostly in the press, but also in the policy circles. Uh, about Islamic schools. And we thought, let's put together a session. So we put a panel session at, the, at Arnova. And one of the privileges of being an executive director of Arnova is that generally your panel sessions get accepted. And they did. And a few people actually even attend. And so they did. And as a result of that conversation, the encouragement was that this should be a book. So we embarked on a survey. Um, and we initially said, we'll start with two questions. And, and as you, if you read the book, you'll see it's broader than that. But we thought, so what was the impact or effect of 9-11 on Islamic schools in the United States, especially post uh, the 2002 raids on Islamic charities? And then the second question we asked was, does the kind of crisis, if there was an imp- impact, positive, negative, does a different kind of a crisis have a difference? And so we looked at the Great Recession. And ultimately, uh, to those two questions, we found that the great 9-11 or the impact of 9-11 energized the Muslim community. They were under attack, under scrutiny, and this happens across all faith communities and uh, group, ethnic groups acc- through history uh, within U.S. Uh, that we've studied that shows that you get energized and you create more civic, en- uh, there's more civic engagement, philanthropy, and so on, and that happens with the Muslim community. But... Then came the second question about the crisis. And what we found is that American Muslims or Islamic schools are no different than any other private schools or any other nonprofits, where the impact was negative, but not as bad as you can imagine and as you remember, not as bad as we thought. Uh, but then Islamic schools started looking at, and there's this theory, and I won't go into it, called new institutional theory, where you start looking at other nonprofits like yourselves. And once you do that, you start embracing policies and procedures that other institutions, like Catholic schools and others, are working on. And there was greater engagement in public policy as a result of that. Uh, it's an exciting project. It's, you know, it's, uh, it, it was exciting to get to the point where it's been published, and we really appreciate uh, Cato sort of being the first institution to sort of uh, start this conversation.
2: Yeah, thank you, Sharik, and thanks, Neil, for hosting us again. Uh, I just want to add to what Sharik said uh, and be a little specific in terms of the methodology we used and a few other nuances that came out during our research. Uh, In terms of methodology, for those who are academics here or those who are interested in research, uh, we did a survey, a national survey, uh, which follows a survey done earlier by the Islamic Schools League of America, which was done about 10 years ago, prior to ours, so we used that as somewhat of a baseline, though our research questions were a little different. But we said, okay, let's look at what research has been done and build upon that as, as any researcher would do. And uh, so that was a starting point. And one of the biggest uh, glitches we found was there is no organized database of Islamic schools. I mean, there isn't one. We, we had to create one from pretty much what existed. And uh, for anyone who's familiar with this space knows that a lot of schools close, they open. Even between our research, the four years, there was a huge change in numbers, which actually if you if you do the survey today, the number might be different. So if you see conflicting numbers, it's because what we started off, the sample changed, and even the responses from certain schools we thought might respond wasn't there because they had closed shop or they had merged with other schools. So we did the survey. We got a certain amount of response rate. Uh, we did three waves of the survey, actually, and then followed up with interviews with board members, principals, and uh, even donors in some cases, to these schools. And from those, we got a lot of the qualitative insights, which are reflected in, in some of the chapters uh, across the book. Uh, so to that extent, I think also in terms of our insights to the sector, I think we, we, uh, I was fortunate to find Sharik also because uh, he's an insider uh, to the extent that he's worked in the space for over 20 years in, in the Islamic schools and Muslim philanthropy space. I'm somewhat of a new newer entrant to the extent that I've worked in the space for about, five years on and off. And my exposure has been much broader in the non-Islamic space or secular, for the lack of better better word. Uh, so to that extent, we have both come to this as researchers who are participant observers in the space. We are regular mosque-goers in the communities we have lived in. We have participated in. we donate to certain organizations that we believe do good work. So to that extent, we are also uh, have inside knowledge of what's really going on. Uh, and As outsiders, we we try to be as objective as possible, as researchers, because we didn't want that to also limit our uh, biases, because uh, the the first question that Sharik started off with was about how did 9-11 impact philanthropy, and the general understanding is that philanthropy really dropped. There was a huge negative impact, which is true, but again, with limitations. So we really dig deep into that question, and we started interviewing people, saying what really happened, of course there was a dip, It's, it's but natural. However, it picked up, so people don't talk about the uptick and the sort of resilience of this space because a giving is a part of the faith. So people just don't stop giving because somebody makes phone calls or somebody tracks your giving on IRS data. I mean, it's not how it works. So we, there were a few interesting findings, and I'll just very quickly uh, start off with about two or three uh, summary of uh, the findings. Uh, and I want to preface that by saying that this sector is not exceptional like when Muslims, uh, you know, scholars talk about Islam being exceptional in America, I don't think that's really true. Uh, if you look at these as institutions, so our framework and lens is uh, looking at these schools as Islamic, or sorry, as both Islamic institutions as well as nonprofits. So they coexist as a continuum. They're not one or the other. They still file their tax returns. They still follow the law of the land. Uh, IRS, I mean, uh, they, they do follow all the protocols that are needed. Uh, a lot of them get accredited by school boards, so they try to remain as much as necessary within the realm of what is uh, acceptable nonprofit profit behavior. So they're not exceptional in that sense. That's the first finding. The second key finding is really regarding legitimacy, uh, and that's a very often overlooked aspect of these schools. So a lot of these schools are fighting for legitimacy within the community as much as they're fighting for legitimacy outside of the community. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, that these schools uh, often face resistance from within the community. Even s- some Muslims don't want these schools to exist in their, say, the, the county, for whatever reasons, right? And uh, related to that is the idea of an Islamic identity, which is our third important finding. And actually we had, we had a quick joke uh, just before we came here, saying who is, what is really an Islamic school? Right? Does calling yourself an Islamic school make you an Islamic school? Or operating as an Islamic school and calling yourself some academy of math and science, does that make you Islamic? So that's a question we sort of dealt with. And uh, to be honest, it's, a very, uh, it's an unsettled question to the extent as, I mean, if you look at it from a theoretical perspective, uh, what really makes you Islamic and who defines that is something we have also dealt with uh, quite, uh, quite in depth in this book. Uh, And lastly, uh, since we are at Cato and since we are uh, in the realm of school choice and vouchers and whatnot, uh, we also found that during the interviews in particular, uh, that while there is uh, some schools are adopting uh, vouchers and school choice uh, programs, a lot of them also are ambivalent. A lot of them are sitting on the fence. Uh, And it's not for the reasons that we assume it is. It's probably because a lot of them just don't want to deal with the paperwork that's the counterintuitive finding that a lot of the, a lot of them don't have the capacity to administratively manage the paperwork or the expertise mm. which is kind of strange to us i mean we, we went with a lot of assumptions during the interviews but we came back with these counterintuitive findings and i think these are well worth discussing and debating both within the community and community of scholars who study these issues
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. I don't want to get at least right away into the school choice connections, but sure. that fear of paperwork and of regulation is actually something that's pretty common sure. uh, that we find in in school choice programs, and it's been actually a problem. We think there is some research on it in places like Louisiana, which we'll probably talk about, but um, where they uh, they have lots of rules and regulations. And what we find are only the most desperate schools, or the the ones that are struggling more, are the ones who are who get involved in those programs because they need the money and are willing to make that trade-off. But that's not really what I wanna focus on right now, but I felt I had to say that. Um, What I am interested in with, and you touched on this a little bit is, um, you know, I think that most people, if they hear Islamic schooling, they think of that as must be one unitary thing. Can you give us a sense of what the breadth is of, of Islamic schooling? And, and I found uh, reading your book uh, really interesting. And just in terms of their, and again, I, I, my guess is either I'm ignorant or other people feel this way. I was unaware, I think in your book it says, the United States is the home for the most diverse population of, of Muslims. Sure. And if you could tell us more about that, just so we have a sort of a sense for how, what is the big picture for Islamic schooling? Sure,
1: Sure. So, um, so what's interesting broadly, thinking more broadly about American Muslims in the United States, uh, it's an extraordinarily diverse uh, com- uh, community and there's no majority ethnic group. So there's there while you know you, you'll hear there's Arabs and Asians and uh, Asians and African Americans as big groups, but none of them have a majority and what's interesting as a scholar of the field, uh, one of the things that's why it's relevant is the belief is that in fifty years the United States will have no majority ethnic groups. So I think there's some lessons learned here that uh, that that may help us in uh, thinking about the future. The second piece is that. The United States, through immigration and other ways, has had Muslims come from all over the world. They've come here because uh, post 1960s, there were educational opportunities. The civil rights movement changed our immigration law, and you had this huge migration of people coming here from all over. Uh, you name a country, and you'll find a Muslim American from that country or ethnic group, uh, ethnic uh, connections with that. So once that's the population that's seeking to institutionalize, and that's one of the interesting things that's different about this wave. This is the seventh or eighth wave of Muslims since the 1400s to the uh, to the United States. The difference is that this is the only one that has survived the first generation. Every other generation wiped out once that first set of uh, wave, uh, you know, once those people died, Islam died with it. Uh, and so this is the first wave that is different and largely because of factors in American history, which is, Uh, we passed the 1950s Tax Reform Act, and the nonprofit sector grew. And so when Muslims came this time, there was an institution that they could create. So when you think about the institution, on their boards and the people that attend them are a very diverse group, regardless of whether they're in a suburban setting or whether they're in an urban setting. And that creates challenges as well. Uh, But it is extraordinarily, probably one of the most diverse, definitely the most diverse set of Muslims uh, 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 than anywhere else you'll find. I think the only other place that I think I've seen something as diverse is during the Hajj pilgrimage, right? If you go to Mecca during the Hajj season, you will see people from all over the world. And so it's kind of unique that the United States gives the opportunity to sort of, on a year-round basis, replicate that experience that you have for a few days in Hajj uh, so And so Islamic schools have that. And in fact, when it comes to this question of legitimacy internally, that diversity creates challenges because each group, ethnic group, although they're American and although they're Muslim, have very different ideas of what makes an Islamic school uh, good for them.
0: Yeah, do you see... Oh, sorry, we
1: Oh no,
2: Yeah, no. if I may quickly add... Uh, if you're interested in, in more like in-depth research on diversity pew has very good research mm-hmm. i think they have they came up with a re- report in 2015 i think or i forget the years but just google pew diversity of muslims in america you mm-hmm. get a bunch of uh, reports And again, uh, according to Pew, American Muslims are the most diverse uh, religious group in the U.S., surpassing all other religious groups.
0: Hmm. Is that reflected, though, in the schools? So I think historically people might think, well, all Roman Catholics were the same, but they came from different ethnic backgrounds and tended to have their own ethnic Roman Catholic churches, even sometimes right across the street from each other. Is that something we see in... In Islamic schools, are there you know, different Islamic schools that really are for specific Islamic communities or do they tend to sort of, uh, the term that I've seen used for public schooling in US history was something called Pan-Protestant. It had sort of the lowest common denominator Protestantism. Is that something in Islamic schools or they tend to be focused on particular communities? So.
1: So within this broad spectrum of 235 to 300, and I like to use this very broad number, which as a scholar kind of freaks me out because you're not supposed to use this kind of a uh, variance, but that many Islamic schools there are probably seven schools that are predominantly African-American. They're called Sister Clara Muhammad schools. And actually, these are the founding institutions of Islamic schools that made it known to the Muslim community that this is possible. So there are seven, and these are largely African-Americans. Uh, they come from um, Imam Waristin Muhammad's movement, and it's named after his mother. They're probably, if you think about uh, ideologically... or or theologically, there are probably a couple, maybe two to three Shia schools. So Islam has a large Sunni population and a Shia uh, population in terms of sects, and there's probably two to three. The remaining schools have maybe predominantly Sunni, but Shia go to those schools, right? So it's a mix. And the reason for this is probably threefold. And I'd say this as much as a scholar, as someone who started an Islamic school, served on the board. I, was on, I founded an education forum, which is the largest uh, gathering of Islamic schools that come together for professional development. One is economics. Uh, one ethnic group or one religious group, part of a group, can't put together an Islamic school together. You need the whole community to come together because if you think about it, Fewer than 2% of Muslim Americans, children go to Islamic schools. Majority go to public school. So it's a very small subsector of that small group. We're less than 1.1% of the population in the United States. And then of that, only a small portion go there. So the whole community is there. So there's an economic reason. I think the second thing is that even though we argue that Islamic schools really aren't Islamic they're just labeled that way. But the idea of creating Islamic school requires embracing on the idea that, you know, there's this verse in the Quran that I've cre- God says, I created you as nations and tribes so that you could embrace each other, not so that you could despise each other or you could recognize. And so within that idea, the idea is that diversity is a required application. And so the Islamic school ideal embraces that idea of diversity. So that's the second piece you will see, by virtue of the fact that Islamic schools cost money, so with the exception of schools like in Indiana where vouchers are important economic equalizer, um, it's a privilege. And so Islamic schools, unfortunately, is privileged for those that can afford to send their kids there. And I think that's, an unf- as, as someone who's an Islamic schools advocate, and there are a few of them you in the room, I think that's an unfortunate thing if you come to Indiana, where we have a strong program, where there are different ways in which you can get sourcing, you'll see a, a different economic diversity, which doesn't exist in many uh, Islamic schools. So, so I think that, and if in that case, you'll see people that are largely professionals, which have been, and uh, you know, I'm just speaking broadly, have been Asians and Arabs and uh, immigrant groups. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, if I may quickly add to what Sharik said, I think there is uh, another aspect to this whole uh, institution, which is often, again, not understood fully, which is that Islamic schools also have non-Muslim students.
1: Yeah.
2: Right? So they also employ non-Muslims as teachers, and even in some administrative positions. So there is also that... uh, I think the biggest factor for a school to exist, be founded, and thrive is uh, the starting point would be the community initiative, obviously. And uh, a lot of these schools start off in, uh, in mosques, or Islamic centers, what we call uh, them in the US. So often they, they start off in, uh, at uh, Islamic centers, mm-hmm. and they either remain part of the Islamic center in a separate building, or even, I, I was at this uh, Islamic center in Chattanooga, Tennessee, not too long ago, and I interviewed the board members, and it was literally the physically the same structure. So you just took a doorway, and you were in the school. The other part was the mosque, right? Mm-hmm. So, and the board is the same. So the uh, Islamic Center board manages the Islamic school. In some cases, that leads to friction or tension, obviously, because of the kind of uh, curriculum that they want to teach or the amount of control they want to have over the finances. So normal logistical nonprofit challenges, which exist in any nonprofit. Uh, whereas in other institutions, there's a very clear demarcation. Even physically, they're separate, and uh, even the boards are very, very different. Even their way of raising funds is very different.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, whereas with an uh, Islamic center, you can ask just as in a Catholic church, you go with, uh, you know, asking for money after the service. Whereas with with the school, you can't really do that, right? So there is. I, we also notice this tension that sometimes the Islamic center has more money, the school doesn't have as much money. So they're like, okay, we were part of you, but we're not really a part of you. Mm. We want your money, but we don't want your control. So those are interesting dynamics, again, we can, we can talk about. But it is diverse. It is, uh, in some cases, as sharik said, mostly a uh, fairly diverse uh, you know, spectrum. But in some cases, of course, uh, it is started by one ethnic group. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably, uh, you know, because of various reasons, because they don't have the kind of education they want. So I think it really varies across, depending on where you are in the country. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. When you and I were talking in, in, before we started about some colleges have faculty sign a statement of faith, right. um, are there some Islamic schools that are very strict about that? Or are there some that are more kind of ecumenical in who they're bringing in? Is that also part of the diversity? I believe so.
2: Yeah, Correct me if I'm wrong, Shari, but at least in my interviews that I did uh, over a wide spectrum of people, there seems to be a lot of ecumenical behavior in that sense. I, uh, of course, they do hire people as, again, we were talking in the green room. uh, People who, they hire people who believe in the mission more than they believe in the faith. Mm. I mean, I'm at Cal Lutheran uh, in Southern California. I didn't have to sign a statement of faith, but I did have to, as a nonprofit institution, believe in their mission Mm -hmm. of educating the local Californian community, the students who live there, one third of who happen to be Hispanic. Mm -hmm. So we are a Hispanic-serving institution. (laughs) for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I uh, also looked at websites of uh, Baptist universities in California and others where you literally have to sign a statement of faith,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? Uh, thankfully, I didn't have to do that. Uh, so yeah, there is, there is a lot of diversity there.
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's different models. There are some Islamic schools that uh, prefer to just hire uh, Muslim teachers. They feel that culturally, cultural sensitivity and so on but for example, in Indiana, I'll give you an example, uh, one of the top schools in the Muslim, Muslim community, but it's also a four-star school, so well-recognized. Um, all their teachers are non-Muslim except for the ones that speak Arabic and Islamic studies because their requirement is that you have to have a teacher's license, right? Uh, so there's that, and there aren't as many teachers that have licenses that happen to be Muslim, but then they have a dress code. Um, now... So they're so they're not required to say pray. They're not required to wear the headscarf, uh, but the feeling is if in the curriculum there's character and modesty, then, facu- then faculty teachers should have that same thing. And teachers are interviewed to see if there's a fit, and uh, you know. So that's one aspect. And here, what's interesting is that, uh, and I've been there. You know, at prayer time, teachers aren't required to pray, but but they're responsible for these children, right? Just because your children are in recess. Um, my kids now go to public school, the teachers are there to make sure my kids are safe. So just at, in these some of these Islamic schools, these teachers have prayer time, and you'll see uh, teachers that aren't Muslim ch- ch- telling the children the Islamic norms, look, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do that. So it's always interesting how you have a non-Muslim, in many ways of another per- Christian or a Jewish or uh, teacher, telling children, look, you're supposed to uh, act respectfully. So... So it's an interesting dynamic that's happening. Uh, that's happening. Uh, uh, so there is that. But some Islamic schools do prefer because they don't want to deal with issues of, uh, you know, they feel that that aspect of culture and faith is, is, is there already, whereas um, other schools don't. The major factor, I would argue, in terms of why most Islamic schools end up hiring, majority of the teachers happen to be Muslim, is because they can't afford to pay uh, what Iman School does in Fishers and so on, because it's expensive. And so a Muslim is more likely to sort of take a pay cut because they believe in the mission and come in and, and teach.
0: Mm-hmm. What do we know about why parents choose an Islamic school? And in particular, since we talked about school choice, and I think this is very important, about you, know, you have to give up a free education in order to then pay for education— What are the reasons people give for choosing? And do many parents that you've talked to, that you've interviewed, say they would choose uh, an Islamic school except they can't afford it? So if they had a voucher, they would make a different choice. You want to go
1: first?
2: As a father of four kids, I'll defer to you. Okay.
0: Well,
1: in our case, all four of my children for elementary school, they all go to public school, they all graduated from public school. But all four of my children, I'll start that and I'll go into the data, but all four of our children went to Islamic school for elementary education. And for in my wife's case and my case, the reason was we are South Asian of descent and we aren't Arabic speakers. And we felt that if our children were to have a better education than we did religiously, they should have Arabic. And so they went to school so they would have a better foundation in Arabic than we would. And that was our, our reason. I have friends, and research shows that some people send their children to Islamic school for the reasons that I did. They want their children to learn Arabic. In my case, my children have memorized in that five years uh, 1 30th of the entire Quran. And in, uh, in one of my kids, 1 15th of the Quran. So there's that foundation that I couldn't have provided because I, don't have, I haven't memorized that many um, and, and so on. So that's something that we weren't able to deliver. Uh, some people send them to Islamic schools. I was on the board of an inner city Islamic school because in that school, the school district wasn't meeting the expectations of education within the Muslim community and within Islam generally, education is a really important value. Just It is an extraordinarily important value. And so when you are, for economic choice or other choices, are stuck in a situation where you can't get that value uh, uh, sort of fulfilled, um, somehow that... Clashes with your religious value that education is important. So many children came to that school because they provided high quality, and in that school district, that school district was largely failing. So that was another reason. Uh, parents in Islamic schools and my friends that are in Catholic school uh, are worried about drugs, alcohol, and and things like that. They're worried about dating. We don't our children well, traditionally don't date. So there's uh, cultural, there's moral reasons for that. Um, There's also an issue of identity. Um, The feeling is that children should know who they are and what their cultural and religious identity is. And all of those things come together in helping you choose, uh, people come to Islamic schools for all of those reasons. But what's interesting is that one of the, the biggest argument that people make about Islamic school is that parents in Islamic schools are trying to isolate their children What's interesting, and we have uh, the, you know, the head of the Council of Islamic Schools of North American, and she'll, she could tell you the same thing. Uh, Islamic schools actually, the administrators and boards of Islamic schools are doing the exact opposite. They're looking for ways in which they can connect with Catholic schools. So you'll have basketball leagues between Catholics and Muslims. You'll have debate teams. My children, when they were in Islamic school, were part of Super Bowl and so on. So it's the exact opposite. There are things that you need to do. So what's interesting is the reasons why most people send, and, you know, and our data shows this too, to Islamic schools, is for many of the same reasons that parents send their children to Catholic schools or other private schools.
2: Yeah, if I may quickly add two points to that. One is, of course, the aspect of culture preservation, culture and tradition, tradition in the sense uh, as understood as something that is an evolving and ongoing uh, discursive tradition, a term that we, we borrowed from other scholars. Uh, so it is, uh, you know, I was actually in India in December, uh, and I remember reading this opinion piece by a South, South, Asian, South Indian scholar, Yohar Anantamurthy, a uh, very, very well-known uh, Kannada scholar, and he said uh, something very profound, and I think it, it applies to our situation as well. He said, Indians are privileged to be living simultaneously in the 13th and the 21st century, uh, to the extent that you live with, you know, especially the majority communities, They live with traditions which have evolved over centuries, right? And while you're trying to make sense of that today, a lot of them do not want to give up their religious, ethnic, spiritual identities. But how do you make sense of it today? I think is a big challenge. Uh, Regardless of whether you call yourself an atheist, whether you call yourself a religious person, I think we are approaching this as a, a fact of life. People like Jose Casanova at Georgetown He's written a lot on these issues in terms of how do people, Talal Asad, for instance, the anthropologist. So a lot of these people have dealt with these questions in a very nuanced and, and very uh, sort of sophisticated manner. And I think uh, we we want to ascribe to those sort of views instead of looking at things like using terms like purely religious or secular. I mean, these are, it's a continuum as even we found in this research. Again, not to simplify or dumb down things, but there is a lot of nuance here uh, and, uh, uh, that's one part. And second, I, again, uh, I want to point to research by Professor Amni Jamal at Princeton. She's done some excellent work on identity issues and uh, sort of the civic engagement aspect of American Muslims and Arab Americans and diaspora communities. And again, uh, just to add to what Sharik said, her research also, and she's done uh, a lot of surveys, extensive uh, statistical analysis, to point to the fact that uh, civic engagement in a faith-based community Usually is positively correlated with civic engagement in other institutions of America. Mm-hmm. So, what we think is uh, actually counterintuitive. So, being more engaged in uh, an Islamic center usually is associated with greater voting, for instance. So, American Muslims who are more positively engaged with the Islamic center or an Islamic institution are more likely to give more money. Mm-hmm. And that holds across all religious groups, we know that, right? Robert Wood now and others have already shown that and we would argue that it also holds true among uh, American Muslims so there is enough research and there's enough uh, data out there in addition to our uh, experiences so uh, as I pointed out earlier uh, so we are relying on both Mm -hmm. Uh, there is hard evidence the evidence that we have gathered in addition to what we have seen over the years as uh, both participant observers as uh, scholars Mm -hmm. and these are some things that I think stand out for us.
0: Yeah, well, and there's a lot of research, uh, Patrick Wolf, University right. of Arkansas has, has shown that private schools actually do a better job, even when you control for lots of factors of the students, of teaching those sort of civic values and behaviors that yeah. public schools are thought to be necessary to do, because they say, if we don't do it, kids won't learn about a bicameral legislature or to vote or to volunteer in their communities, and actually it turns out that, that private schools and private religious schools do a better job of that. That said, I suspect that there is still a pretty broad uh, feeling if you ask the average American you stopped on the street, you say, well, what school likely teaches American values, whatever those are, better? And they'd probably choose, I'd say, a public school versus a private school. And then I think Islamic schools, I would guess, have a bigger problem than a lot of non-Islamic private schools, though certainly they, they also run into this. How do Islamic schools deal with fears that they're producing extremists, you know, I'll put that in quotes. But that is, that's often what we hear, you know, when I talk about school choice, and that we want to um, include in that all sorts of schools, all sorts of private schools, schools that can be very clear about their religion, because we're in a pluralist society, we need to allow people to find the schools that comport with their values, that allow communities to continue to exist, to perpetuate themselves, and always, or often the response is, yeah, but you can't let people choose things that are extremists, that are dangerous. How do Islamic schools deal with the, the fear that they may be inculcating some sort of extremism?
2: Yeah, I think that's, uh, to quickly answer that, I'd say it's the same uh, strategies or techniques that islamic standards are adopting i would say because these are similar institutions and i think as sharik pointed out earlier uh, they are building a lot of interfaith coalitions i mean it's a well known fact for people who work in the space they are being more transparent uh, to the extent that they are uh, you know filing the 990s and trying to comply by you know each and every uh, law that is out there so in terms of compliance as a nonprofit institution they're trying to be transparent in terms of the public relations efforts i think they're trying to be more Uh, inclusive, because in many cases, they don't have a choice. I think if you look at it even pragmatically, they need to engage with local community, as we said earlier, because that helps them bring legitimacy as an institution. Because as we all know, any startup, I mean, if you look at these as startups, in the first two to five years, they face the same challenges as any startup. right? So there are those, uh, and without buy-in from the community primarily and outside donors or people who pay fees, uh, you're not going to survive. It's, it's as simple as that. And to add it to that, the third layer of complexity is the whole Islamophobia of anything Islamic is deemed suspicious. So I think that's uh, sort of a no-brainer to the extent that it will come your way and people are, again, dealing with each community sort of figuring out their own strategy. Some, uh, if I may quickly add, uh, are also moving away from this whole Islamic branding to the extent that they're calling themselves neutral names uh, and I did interview about two or three principals from these institutions. And they said uh, uh, things like, we don't want to be known as an Islamic institution. We want to be known as a school that provides quality education mm-hmm. to everybody around us, including non-Muslim students. But we happen to be following Islamic ethics. So that's that's something we found.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Sure? I think the other thing that we uh, we push for, uh, the idea is the idea of external legitimacy, right? We're using this in that frame and Islamic schools, schools, by and large, are using accountability. There's this whole field of research and legitimacy and accountability, and accountability basically says they look at ways in which they can be accountable through different ways. 990 filing, tax filing, and so on. Looking for accreditation. If you're an accredited Islamic school, it makes you, uh, you, you know, you're broadly you can say, look, if I'm so bad, why did the Department of Education accredit me? You can say that externally, and you can say that internally. Um, applying for accreditation beyond, you know, with these regional uh, organizations, and that's another piece, Um, applying for government funding. One of the interesting things in 2000, when we started the Islamic Education Forum, which was a professional development opportunity to have Islamic schools there, you know, one of the concerns I had was I didn't know how many people would show up. You know, I was thinking 100 uh, Islamic school teachers, because I assumed they didn't have money but we had 400 people show up. And so then later on, as I talked to them, I said, how did you get that money? They said, when we found out that this was happening, then we started looking at where we could get money because we didn't have that. And we found out there were title funding. And so they started engaging with the local public school system, which at least in Indiana, but other states, local, Indiana's the public school superintendent is required at the county level to also uh, look at and assist other schools that are in their school system. So, so there's those relationships that build in. So there's those external relationships that you build through interfaith coalitions, but in order to have accountability internally, you that external accountability helps in both ways. And for people that are coming into your school, you can say we're accredited to parents. You can say we have voucher money if you're having funding shortage, or we have these other things. We take part in these professional developments. We work with the local school system. In fact, many Islamic schools adopt the same textbooks that the school in that same location, the public school does, with the exception of the Islamic uh, studies piece. So those are all ways in which they internally, so they're actually building performance accountability that helps that narrative both externally and internally.
0: Now, I know you looked at the US, let me just ask, I don't know whether you've looked outside, but um, there's a, a graduate student actually at the University of Arkansas, works with Patrick Wolf, who I mentioned, Denise Shaquille, and he recently, Um, looked at a summary of policies of Islamic schooling in the cultural West. Um, That's the U.S., Canada, Australia, Germany, some other countries. And I was surprised by what he found, that there are lots of sort of interrelations in these other countries. Um, Six countries the Islamic schools are privately funded, six of 17 total that he includes in the Cultural West. But there are eight that get some sort of public funding. There are nine that have Islamic religious instruction within the public schools, and six that have provision of publicly funded teacher education. Do you have any sense for, you know, is there a country or two that we should look at as they're doing it right to sort of work with Islamic schools?
1: UK perhaps? UK, I think European. Uh, I think European countries, and I, you know, we looked at it broadly, mm-hmm. but I think countries like Germany and Belgium and so on, which have a way in which, you know, ultimately everybody pays taxes, right, and those taxes go to different reasons. And I think in Belgium and in Germany, they have a way in which you can designate where your certain portion, which faith community they, that should go to, as part of your Id- identity, right, and so. So there's that, a little bit of uh, engagement amongst citizens and, uh, and some of, not a lot of tax dollars, but some. And in those settings, if you look at Islamic schools, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon because there has been some really good uh, growth. But we didn't look, you know, uh, I would hate to, uh, both Sabin and I would hate to sort of uh, push ourselves as scholars of, uh, of uh, schools in the Western context.
2: Yeah, I did come across a couple of articles and there was, I recall one paper now which looked at a comparative of three European countries mm-hmm. and the US. I, I forget the name of the scholar, but he did look at these aspects and especially the funding part. And I think that pretty much uh, Shirek summed it up neatly.
0: Mm. Great. Was it Charles Glenn by any chance?
2: I can't recall. Charles Glenn and
0: and Ashley rogers Burner are doing a... uh, They're running... I can't remember the name of the center, but it's at UVA that's starting to look at a lot of these issues as well. Well, so I've asked a lot of questions. I have a whole lot more, though, if nobody else has any questions. But now I'd like to uh, open it up to you all. And again, the format here is... Um, it can be a question, and we like questions, but if you have a comment you'd like to make, that's great. Uh, you all can respond first to it, and then if somebody makes a comment and you in the audience and you think, well, I should respond to that, that's fine. Just remember, try and keep it brief, and if it's going too long, then I will cut you off. So are there any people with questions? And also what I try and do is bounce back and forth, side to side, back and forth, just to keep things exciting. So we'll start right here in the middle though, this lady right here, second row in. If you could raise your hand, ma'am. And please do write for the microphone because it's all being recorded and we want the people watching online to hear everything.
4: My name is Sufi Smith. I'm the executive director for the Council of Islamic Schools in North America. and. I have a lot of comments, but I'll hold myself to just uh, what you just mentioned just now. Dr. Charles Glenn, he actually uh, the book is just coming out now, and he did a study of Islamic high schools and their role in character formation and civic engagement, and uh, the results are impressive. But the book is was um, it's coming out at the Advanced Center for Cultural for Advanced Studies in Culture at University of Virginia, and they did a study of ten different educational sectors, Jewish schools, Lutheran schools, public schools, and so forth. But Islamic schools is one of them. So there is a um, lot of good information there. Well,
0: good to know. I'm tracking the book, I didn't know it was ready to come out. but And I also can never remember a name that long for a center. So I'm glad that you know it. OK, we'll go over here, right in the front. Good afternoon. My name is Todd Wiggins. I have a question about
1: the potential for students who study here uh, in Islamic environments to develop um, cultural related
5: businesses here? Mm
1: -hmm. So maybe factories or production facilities, would there be an advantage for those students working together culturally to be more productive and how could that help the overall economy of the US here? So, um, So I think in our study, we didn't see that what we have seen in specific areas, for example, Chicago is one example, is the high, if you look at the leadership in Chicago of many Islamic organizations or civic organizations, many of them have come from Islamic schools. So I think, and we we haven't done research on this, but anecdotally you'll see kids coming out of Islamic school being part of the Muslim Student Association, just because that's a level of engagement, getting opportunities to be very engaged, and then graduating into leadership roles. Now, that isn't to say that kids coming out of public school aren't seeing that, but that's because it's a small community, we're seeing that. Uh, I didn't, honestly, I haven't thought about the business side. I think the only uh, thought that comes, and, and and I think thinking about the Islamic business community, um, you have just as many businesses, if not many, that have come from, proportionally, I think that come from kids that have grown out of Public schools and Islamic schools. So I'm, we haven't looked at that data. Um, you know, in, I don't know.
2: Yeah. If I may quickly plug in for a friend of mine, uh, <laughs> she couldn't be here, but she works at the State Department and has is part of this organization that provides uh, what they call, if I I hope I'm not misquoting them, but a halal uh, stay, as in like a non-alcoholic, non whatever, you know, like air, similar to Airbnb. I think they call it something. Yeah. Thank you very much. So that's one example. I think, uh, yeah, in the realm of entrepreneurship, uh, again, Ogilvy, a company that I follow uh, quite uh, closely for the campaigns, has had this interesting uh, study on the halal market globally. And it's it's a massive market. I mean, even if you look at it purely from uh, a commercial perspective, and I think people who are sensitive to these issues and who want to cater to that market, even from a purely market perspective... Are getting into that space, though. So again, um, my our research on that aspect is very limited. I, I'm I'm quoting purely anecdotally, so take everything we say
1: with a grain of salt. One additional point that I just want to quickly make is I think, just thinking about our research now and just framing that question, I think, I think it is less likely. I'm just giving you this not because I have data for this, and so I'm just telling you this as a non-profit scholar who happened to co-author this book, right? Is from that perspective, we didn't think about this. I think the reason is that Islamic schools are under-resourced, and I know, you know we have the executive director of the Center for Muslim Philanthropy here, and their work is around how can we build, upgrade the capacity of Muslim nonprofits, including Islamic schools. Islamic schools, we have seen, are really doing well on academics, right? We can see that Islamic schools largely depend on tuitions, and tuition is lower than any, most other religious or private schools, so they're under-resourced. We also know, just broadly in terms of incubations when it comes to entrepreneurship, whether it's on social side, uh, nonprofits, or on the business side, that it has to be intentional programming that produces that. So my kids that are in high school and public school have programs like that because they have the resources those schools do to produce those programs. I think Islamic schools haven't arrived there. There may be one or two out of the broadly, but that's where they need to, they, they need those kind of programmings, but that hasn't been a major priority. Um, what's been a priority is uh, cultural preservation, academic excellence, and leadership development. But I think that as Islamic schools become more professional, raise more money, become effective nonprofit organizations, you know, deal with the legitimacy and accountability issues that we're talking about, uh, in a better way, we may see that. But right now, I think Islamic schools, in my view, both in terms of as an advocate as and as a scholar and nonprofits, I would argue that it's less likely, um, in my view.
0: Okay. Now we'll go over to this side. I don't think I'm going to decide that man right there up front.
6: Thank you. I'm Ahmed Adina Ahmed with the Minerator Freedom Institute. You commented on how the economic factors uh, encourage diversity in the Islamic schools. I was wondering if something that I've observed uh, anecdotally is supported by your systematic study, that as a school gets larger and larger, uh, it, uh, the, it will sometimes split off into two more homogeneous schools, but that then as they get larger and larger, they become more diverse again.
1: I mean, first of all, it's an honor to meet you, Dr. Ahmed. Uh, know you by reputation. Um, uh, But I think you're right. I think the challenge is, so if you think about the uh, school's dynamics, right, elementary schools, I'll tell you this as a board member, uh, elementary schools are cheap. You need one school teacher. for Middle schools are a little more expensive, and high schools are very expensive. So what's happening is on the elementary school and middle school, and this is no different. Think about your school district you're in. In my school district, we have four elementary schools, one middle school and one high school, right? So Islamic schools do have some of those things where in some cases, especially the big metropolitan areas, they have split about around less, um, it's less homogeneity based on ethnicity, but more on ideas, right? It's a group of people that can't, you know, there's these conflicts, they come in and create two but what we're seeing is when it, when those kids go to middle school and high school, because of the economies of scale and, uh, and the financial factors, that's where the mergers are happening. So I think in Islamic schools across the elementary school, you will see a lot of this kind of largely not because of, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm also an arbitrator for nonprofits within the Muslim community. So, uh, so. Not You're a Very busy person. I am I'm a busy starting <laughs> to gather. <laughs> I try to be, but I'm not effective at any of the things I do. But I do a lot of things. But uh, as an arbiter, one of the things you see is this dispute, and dispute may seem or may be put in ethnic terms, but by and large, what you'll see is that it's on co- personality or uh, uh, or ideological things. So we're seeing that as well. But
0: uh, uh, thank you. Okay, now I should go to the back because I haven't been in the back yet. Uh, we'll go to this lady here with the scarf. that That's you, you just turned around, yeah. I wish, uh, we need um, name tags that are like giant posters for me to be able to call on anybody, so. Oh, no, sorry, it was the lady behind you. But I, if we have time, I'll get back to you. See, that's why we need giant name tags.
4: Two quick
5: questions. First is whether there are any um, Muslim-based, faith-based accrediting agencies, as there are, for example, for so-called Christian schools. And um, secondly, can you give us any um, figures on the percentage of graduates of um, Islamic schools who go on to college and the percentage that then graduate? My guess is substantial.
1: So um, what I'll say is, and I'll defer if you don't mind, one of the accrediting agencies is here, the Council of Islamic Schools of North America, and they are an accrediting agency. Uh, and it's uh, and so, so they're here and they are, uh, although that process is slower than say the state level work. Uh, bring her the microphone? Are, I, I forget the well. numbers and I know uh, uh, Sufi would be able to tell us, but I think you're seeing a really large number. Uh, the proportionality of people that graduate from uh, Islamic schools and go on, it's not a very small number. It's an, I, I would say it's way in the 90s, and I forget the number exact, but I'm sure she will Let's have that.
4: Can you say your name one more time? Sufia, so Sufia okay. so. which is the Council of Islamic Schools in North America, and I'm the executive director. We have been accrediting Islamic schools for the last five years, but the way we do it is we accredit the Islamic studies, Arabic, and Quran component. So a school will go through accreditation with the regional accrediting agency and add on the CISNA accreditation. So, for, so from the last, from the five years when we started, 2012 was the first school, we now have 30 schools that have the dual accreditation. The Islamic schools, basically it's kind of understood that you're going to go on to college, a four-year college. So almost all of them will talk about their 100% graduation rate and the fact that um, almost all of their students go on to four-year colleges. And if I could just say we have currently – Yes, between 250 to 300 schools, full-time Islamic schools. Of those, about 85 are members of CISNA, and about 30 of them are accredited with CISNA. And one of the things um, you asked was, are Islamic schools teaching extremism? And I would say, not only based on Dr. Glenn's um, research that he did, but from what I've seen, I've gone to maybe I would say about 30 schools all over the country, one of the things they want for their students for the parents want for their children is to be part of the society they live here they are not interested in extremism they want the islamic heritage but they want to be they want to excel at academics and they want to do well in the society so you know they're and so they're involved in things they're involved in civic engagement many schools participate in model un model congress mock trial get to know you know what How the society works, and yes, they most of them follow the state common core standards.
1: One thing, if I may, just add on to your. So one, and this is just a joke. So please quote me and Twitter me uh, appropriately. But I remember one Islamic school teacher telling me as when there's a press report, Islamic schools teach extremists, and one principal, you know, almost jokingly but in frustration said. We don't have time. You know, if you think about it, you have seven periods. You have to add prayer, which isn't. You have to have recess and lunch. You have to keep, because the economy says you don't want to make it inconvenient or else people won't come. So you have to keep give them the same amount of time. You start it when public school starts. You end at public school time. If you talk about a 40, 45 minute period, and then you have to add two subjects that are not taught in public school, Arabic and Islamic studies and Quranic studies, so three, right? So when you have all that and you have to make sure your kids are part of testing. So they take in Indiana the I-step and so on. So, you know, so he said, who has time to go beyond and teach, you know, these other things? You know, if we can get what we
0: have to do, uh, that's enough. So, I mean, it's a joke, but I mean... Um. Well, there, there was a... I, w- I want to ask about this. I actually haven't heard about it in a long time, and I think from the research I've seen, I'm not worried about extremism. I didn't want to give that impression. But that is a fear people have. And there was actually a story you may remember. Uh, it was making news in the D.C. area f- three or four years ago about... Um, I have it written here. The Islamic Saudi Academy in in Fairfax, which as I understand it is owned by the Saudi government, but they were using textbooks that upset a lot of people. They said that they had um, extremist content in them. Uh, And then I saw in 2015 that was in the news again and do, do stories like that, is there some sense that they uh, permeate how non-Muslims look at Islamic schools here or do they just fall on deaf ears and people don't make that association?
1: So, you know, and I'll say this as an attorney, but think about um, think about uh, when the, the national scandal on, say, United Way, right, and uh, uh, their CEO, was uh, when the salaries came up, right? Or think about different nonprofits broadly, not just Muslim broadly, what happens within the nonprofit sector broadly when there's a scandal, right? It doesn't just impact that charity, it impacts the sector broadly. But by and large, what we know of the 1.4 million nonprofits, these are the outliers, right? By and large, we have a really thriving nonprofit sector, and I'm not saying one is any of those well, any of those scandals are correct or not correct. I'm just saying what happens when there's a scandal, regardless of whether it's true or not. Similarly, not just when it comes to Islamic school per specific as this was, but anytime something happens related to Muslims or Islam, or you know, it may not be in this country, Islamic schools and Muslim nonprofits are broadly. Affected and by and large, externally affected in a negative way, um, and I think that's that is a challenge. That you think that you're making gains, and uh, Islamic school uh, teachers, will, professor uh, board members will say we're making gains, and something happens, and you're, you're you know you you sometimes feel that uh, you're starting a new. The good thing is that luckily. Um, In the United States, we have probably more people that understand the importance of diversity and engagement and so on. So the number of allies have grown over time, and that's been really helpful in those periods of time.
2: And if I may quickly plug in uh, two resources to look at this issue a little more carefully, Uh, beyond the realm of schools, I'm, again, looking at nonprofit institutions more generally. One is a report by ACLU that came out in 2011. Uh, If I remember the title correctly, it is called... uh, Freezing Faith, no, Chilling Faith, Freezing Charity. was on the impact of some of the raids and closure of nonprofits post 9-11. And uh, one of the striking things, it's fairly long, about 45, 50-page, fairly well-researched report. And one of the key findings that stood out for me personally was uh, that even the foundations that were shut down or the charities that were shut down were not shut down for terrorism-related charges. They were shut down for other reasons because the government could not find enough proof to actually indict the people on these grounds. So that's number one. Number two, uh, as Sharik rightly pointed out, I think if there's one outlier, again, I don't think we are defending or apologizing for any bad behavior. If a nonprofit misbehaves, doesn't file it in the does things which it's not supposed to do, well, it deserves to be shut down, whether it's Muslim or Christian or whatever, right? I think uh, that's the lens we are bringing to to the argument, that, again, we are not being... Uh, defenders of any institutions, if that makes sense. However, I think uh, there is this negative stigma that comes because of one or two outliers that come to the table and and spoil the whole thing. And uh, a quick anecdote again about, I lived in Syracuse, upstate New York. I went to Syracuse University between 2010 and 12, And I recall uh, one of the board members of the mosque uh, saying how uh, post 9-11 particularly, Uh, There was this huge stir-up in terms of targeting that specific Islamic center, uh, and there was a very unfortunate case for a doctor who was an oncologist, actually, who was one of the few oncologists in upstate New York. Served a couple of uh, counties around. Uh, He's still, I believe, in jail on trumped-up charges. Again, they couldn't really find substantial evidence, but there were raids. There was this almost-a-media hype created around his uh, arrest, and support of people in, and basically, according to the board member, he was sending medication to Iraq uh, mm-hmm. around that time, and that was seen as providing uh, material support for terrorism. And actually, I've written a paper for, uh, on this very specific issue, and there is a, a think tank in D.C. specifically looking at security-related issues in the nonprofit sector, and anybody who knows anything about this space will tell you that it's a lot of gray area. What is providing material support for terrorism? feeding a child in a a conflict zone, giving him or her food, could, by law, as of today, land you in trouble. That's a fact. I don't think how many many of you know this, but that's actually a fact. So not to, again, uh, belittle uh, the actual stuff that may be going on. Perhaps there are some cases. But these are facts which we need to be aware of. And look at this in a nuanced way. You know, I think we have an attorney sitting here, so he'll tell you the legalities. I don't, I don't understand law as much. But yeah, there are these nuances. And uh, look carefully at what exactly happened and why were these charges brought about? On what grounds did they indict people? And so that tells you a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm not taking sides here, but you need to look at the whole story uh, critically.
0: Yeah, Well, and extremism's not just a charge against Islamic sure. schools. Sure, sure, of course. And especially as we start to look at school choice programs, there's a lot of concern. Actually, the Huffington Post ran a series of articles about there are sort of conservative, evangelical, Christian schools sure. that use books published by Bob Jones or Abeka or some other um, publishers that they think are extreme or have uh, inaccurate material. And that's actually been a far bigger focus in Islamic schools. But of sure. course, in Louisiana, when they were trying to have an expansive... Uh, school choice program, people who are actually in favor of school choice said, but we can't include Islamic schools. Mm-hmm. What would people in Islamic schools, or, or you, you all personally, what would you say about you know, if you're gonna have school choice? Should you have school choice? That includes Islamic schools. Should you have school choice at all? And, and is, there, is there a benefit to society if you include lots of different kinds of schools mm-hmm. in, a, in a program for education, the school choice program, um, where they could have all sorts of different beliefs, it could be religious, it could be pedagogical, but a, sort of a, a whole bunch of beliefs that some people may not like. What what would be the thought about that? So, and I'll, I'll share, so I think the, the point I'll
1: make from the perspective of the book and the findings that we found, and the, I think by and large, uh, any nonprofit executive, but specifically Islamic schools, most would argue in favor of school choice because it, it allows them to do more with, uh, with what they want to do and achieve. And so funding sources, because it's the number one barrier of Islamic schools. Islamic schools have amazing professionals and have amazing volunteers and board members and wonderful children that want to live a very special kind of life, a life of engagement, a life of uh, service. The thing, the barrier for that, just you know, similar to that, we don't have the kinds of funding to do that, and I think Islamic schools uh, would would support that. As someone who has been on the board of two Islamic schools that have were pre-choice and went pro-choice, I can see how we've had both in an urban and a suburban district. I've seen the amazing impact. Right, rather than one, rather than being a school of privilege where children like my, my children, because we could afford it, could go to it, we were able to expand that to children who, uh, of refugees or people that wouldn't have been able to get in. And it's important that, we, that that be the equalizer. The fact that those kids, because of their school district, were stuck to go going to an F-grade school was not fair to them. And it doesn't provide them the access to the American dream. And I think that's what Islamic schools uh, would argue. I think Islamic schools would also argue specifically against ideas. And, uh, you know, there, we had similar discussions in Indiana about excluding Islamic schools. And, you know, regardless, what I think Islamic schools would argue, and I would argue as someone who studied nonprofits um, and philanthropy, is I think we have to trust our country a little more. We have to believe in the ideals and values through which we created. We, we established this nation as, as a nation of ideals and values. And that's lasted a long time. And within this system that we call America, and especially the nonprofit sector and the growth argues for it, is that there are a number of things that will correct things that are wrong. Market forces being one. I would never send my children to a place where they would be in danger. Right. And so market forces being one, we have enough regulations within schools, unfortunately, and I would uh, be happy to say that both as a, 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 you know, I think we have enough regulations in school systems, not just for public schools, but also for choice schools to ensure that uh, these funds are going to be used uh, well. Um, and, and accounted for. And then finally, I think we have enough social and civic forces. People on the grassroots level that are in the area where schools exist are the first people that can sense if something's wrong, if something's going on or weird. And we have to trust in those people. I think there's a book, there's a next week, if I could plug, February 7th, there's a press release at Aspen, a new project called Pluralism in Peril coming out. And I think that's lost. We have less trust in ourselves as a people and so on. So I, you know, I don't mean to go on a soapbox, but I think it's the, to answer these questions about policy based on exclusion, uh, especially public policy that excludes based on exclusion, I think there's, as a lawyer, the constitutional issues that these people would have to deal with. But I don't think beyond that, they don't follow within the ideals and values of our nation. Mm-hmm. By the way, you're here so
0: you can go in a soapbox, so don't worry about that. This is all one big (laughs) soapbox. Uh, did you have anything you I'm want? i Okay, so we'll go back to questions. Sorry I started to ask my own, but I figured, what the heck? I'm running it. Um, so let's go back over to this side, and then we'll get that man there. So we'll go the guy with his hand up and then the man at the end. So we're ready to go one, two. And remember, if you want to make a comment, that's fine. You know, it's ironic. It seems to me when I say you can make a comment, we only get only questions. Um, so
6: maybe uh, I don't know what to do anymore, but. I'm Adam Tyner. I'm at the Fordham Institute. I wanted to keep the school choice uh, thing going here. So, um, you emphasize that there are a lot of schools where the religious element is not—it's—it's um, it's not the predominant thing. It's a school, and it happens to be an Islamic school, and they don't have discrimination for religious, like religious discrimination for teachers, and Muslims go there and non-Muslims go there. I'm curious if schools where that element is more of a cultural part of it if those if those are pursuing strategy of chartering where they could uh, develop charter they could expand and do charter schools they would uh, be able to retain a lot of what they do but maybe you know maybe have to dial down some of the religion some I know that uh, the Fatula Gulen has a bunch of schools uh, around the country that are part of charter uh, charter networks and I was just curious if that's something you study in your book and if that's uh, a big thing.
0: Just real fast, we were talking about Gulen before we started, and I said, I wonder if we should talk about that. So uh, feel free to talk about the things we talked about before, too, as you answer to that if you want.
1: So, you know, and I should apologize, I keep going first, but... Uh, 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 you know, I'm older I told you than, you, I'm older
0: than. I said you could have a soapbox, I didn't say you get one.
1: You know, so. We agreed, uh, the guy with less hair goes first, so I mean, <laughs> he has the privilege of having more hair than I do, so he goes second. And that's but, why I introduced everybody. <laughs> there we go. But um, this charter strategy, uh, you know, and the former head, or maybe the current head, but one of the chairs of the Council of Islamic Schools of North America and I were talking, this is a uh, decade ago when charter school movement was going up. And there was this big push within Islamic schools that, you know, we should push, and all these people were passing uh, around this data. And my advice, and his advice, and incidentally, we're both lawyers, we said, we're, we recommended that Islamic school advocates not go for that, unless they truly want to do be a charter school. So don't create a charter school just because it's a funding mechanism, it'll make life easier if you want to have an Islamic school that teaches Arabic Islamic studies and Quran, right? Because what we found uh, that schools, Islamic schools and non-Islamic schools, but Islamic schools that have done that, have faced lawsuits. So there's this concept in Islam, and I think if we use a theological concept, what, you know, the advantage of talking to religious educators is you can talk about religion. And so one of the things that we argue is that there's a fundamental concept in Islam, which is what is the intention, right? And if your intention is to create an Islamic school or a school that preserves Arabic, Islamic, and Quranic studies as a requirement, then don't go to charter school. You're not only violating law, you're violating God's law, right? But if you're doing and 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 if you're but if you want to have, as the Golan movement is focused on, their vision is not about Arabic Islamic Studies and, and Quran. Their vision, and again, we don't study the Golen movement, we purposefully excluded them because they don't fit within the definition of Islamic school, which is Arabic Islamic Studies and Quran, and having that identity. Their vision is that their religious responsibility is to elevate the societies that they live within. And that means education being the core value is a way to do this. I'm not a Glenn stu- I'm not a member of the Glenn movement. But that's what I've been told by people that run Glenn schools. And in their cases, it's appropriate to do the charter school because it's a different purpose, right? It matches the purpose of the law. So I, I don't know if that uh, answers Thumbs that. sums it up
2: nicely, yeah.
0: All right, so I said that man's next. And then we'll go to that man after after him. So... <laughs> This Uh, lady
2: here, she's had a hand hand up for a while, and then we'll go to you for (laughs) sure. Sorry, Uh,
0: (laughs) I may be all knowing, but I'm not all seeing.
5: (laughs) Uh, Jihad Saleh Williams with Islamic Relief USA, Uh, but my statements have nothing to do with my current life as a lobbyist here in DC. Um, More to my previous life that Sabbath, you know, is familiar with when I was a teacher um, for several years in Los Angeles. First, straight out of school teaching at at a Muslim school, uh, City of Knowledge. Uh, which has a distinction of in Los Angeles, which has many uh, Islamic schools, but being the first to be a first K through K-12, the first one to achieve, um, it's the Western States Accreditations off the first time, I straight to, I think, the, the longest term, the five-year term. Um, and what's unique about it is it is a Shia-majority school, but has Sunnis there. In um, that time before I left and went taught in LA Unified as a special education teacher, then looking back on it, uh, A lot of the things you spoke about is what people put the adults in the room are doing to put into the school, to seek these accreditations, to create services and the academics, the legitimacy, ultimately still for the purpose of good education for their children. Uh, But one thing that I did learn from that experience in teaching uh, in a Muslim school, then becoming a special education teacher later in public schools, was looking at some of the deficiencies and looking at really the other way around, what are the complexities of the students themselves and their needs and where maybe schools, not just Muslim schools, a lot of schools, private schools, may fall short. So in your research and looking at schools, what are some of the areas, though there may be a strong focus on parallel with the Islamic learning and teaching, preserving the culture, but still high academic standards for those who are able to be in the schools, where they're financially able well off to live, attend, or the schools are giving discounted rates and subsidizing them because of higher rates for other students, which a lot of schools seem to do. Um, So like special education needs. I look back now and I saw many of the students at my school that, you know, I didn't have the language understanding until I went to public schools and became a special education teacher. But now I can remember back and seeing, thinking little Muhammad or little Fatima, these there were students probably in need of special education services. But the schools... The parents, maybe because also cultural stigma towards special education needs, the fear, especially for immigrant groups that who interpret it as my child's the village idiot type of mentality, unfortunately. But how do you see now schools? Are they be able to provide these type of services? Um, you know, students, again, who, who would qualify for uh, free or reduced school lunches in public schools? They're working class parents, but the schools that they're at, the private schools, they want their school, children at Muslim schools but maybe there's food nutritional issues and other things. What do you see that maybe there's a deficiency in these schools? Again, this is not exclusive just to Muslim schools, but maybe because of their new institutions, unfamiliar certain services, um, they're not it providing or it just don't have the capacity to do it.
2: Yeah, uh, if I may start off, and I can add to this. Uh, uh, you're right in pointing out those deficiencies, Jihad. I think uh, there is a definite lack of uh, special needs education, for sure. I think that stood out in many of the interviews that I did. Mm-hmm. And also, Sharik uh, can mm-hmm. attest to that. Uh, there is also, uh, in terms of granting, say, discounted fees and things like that, we found that some of the schools are doing a decent job. Uh, one interview I did with a parent, actually, uh, this happened quite by accident in Indianapolis. Uh, he was a taxi driver, uh, and he had three of his kids at Islamic schools, the local one of the Islamic schools. There are a couple of them in, in, in Indianapolis and i asked him how can you afford because i, I know these are like, not everyone can afford to send and he wasn't uh, unless he was an exceptional taxi driver he would make only so much money right uh, so he said yeah all of them get about 80% written off like i just pay about 20% of the tuition so we saw that also in a couple of other and taking that cue i said okay this is a good insight let me let's delve into this a little bit so though not part of the survey In the interviews, we did uh, look into those aspects. And uh, an important point which was brought up earlier, and I want to add to that, is as a school matures, this is an interesting finding again. So initially, uh, how a school starts is usually, as I said, at an Islamic center or independently, a couple of people come, put together some money, and they start a school. Uh, But over a period of time, say after the two-year or five-year mark, uh, philanthropy or charitable giving is a good impetus to start an Islamic school but it does not sustain the school, right, as with a lot of other institutions. So market forces have to take over. Fees have to start coming in. Other grants and things have to start coming in. And also, I think, related to that, once the school reaches a certain maturity, uh, I, I believe uh, schools can also start giving those sorts of benefits to, to students. But that's a very interesting question, and I, I we hope to address that in much more depth in terms of what percentage of students get uh, discounted fees or other benefits. But yeah, absolutely, they they are not, as a general statement from what we know, I don't think they match up to the resources that obviously public schools have. But it does depend on what community you're examining. Some uh, obviously do a better job than others.
1: But I think by and large you'll find that Islamic schools are less expensive and don't cover the cost of, uh, of educating, the, the provided the services. And that's why philanthropy becomes important just to make help Islamic schools go uh, forward. I think the second thing is Islam, Islamic schools now have started to sort of provide those services, but on a larger portion, this is a challenge, and rely on IEPs provided by uh, by the local county. So uh, you know, uh, kids that go to schools that that you know I, I served on the board of our children that had special needs, whether it was English as a second language or these others, they got those services from the public school, the IEP. But it's something that we have to work on. I think the other thing I'll just make, because I know there's this school choice piece and uh, to talk about, it, and I'm not saying as an advocate and so on, just as an, um, I'm not saying that we should or shouldn't. I think school choice laws uh, are even complicated. So for example, uh, there's a Catholic schools were actually sued, I think, uh, by, I think, in state of Indiana, because school you basically, if you're an Islamic school teacher or a private school uh, 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 administrator, normally what you should do is you should say, okay, this is what it costs to operate, right? And then you can say, this is my capacity of students. I have 200 kids. And then for each child, there should be a cost so that the tuition that comes in is equivalent to the cost of educating. And we all know that that's not the case. Philanthropy sort of pays for some of it. So when school choice, one of the things it does is it allows to have that market-based calculation where, let's say, you can say it costs $10,000 to educate a child. Now, voucher programs, so you, you do that, and you put the voucher programs will be capped at, say, $5,500. So now you have $4,500 left to go which some parents can pay because they were paying the $5,500 before the voucher program came in. So let's say you're a religion, like in this case, the Catholic school was questioned, but this was a question in Islamic schools as well. So, so ideal, now the voucher school program, what it does is it allows you to increase your tuition by 10000 Those people that were paying $5,500 before are still paying the amounts close to what they were paying before because they can afford to pay that which is what you want to do in terms of public policy and in terms of private. But, if, but what about those people, like the taxi driver that has three kids who can't pay $4,500 per child, which comes to, what, 13500 He may be making 20 a year. So in some schools, because of mission-based, started giving discounts or scholarships for those kids, and some voucher programs say that you do, by doing that you violate the law and they have to pay back vouchers. And I think, so even the problem with this, and there's, there's a big debate on vouchers that should be had, but I think what we're not thinking about even within the voucher, voucher law, some of the things, you know, it's in, like I say in Indiana, regardless of whether you like it or you don't, it's there. So let's, for, if you want to vote, if you want to fight to repeal, you do that. But in the meantime, let's figure out if there is a public policy, how to make it better. And I think that debate is missing. And what I'm worried about is that this move towards voucher will suddenly make private schools more privileged uh, towards privileged children than what it's supposed to do because of those things.
0: Hmm. We can spend a lot of time on that question all by itself. But uh, so we're going to this man and then this lady. So... The man back there, he has his, his finger up, and then we're going to go to the lady right in front. And then we should probably have a time for one or, well, we'll see. I can't promise anything more than that, uh, but I'm going to do my best.
2: Can you, my question is that uh, amongst the uh, school systems that you have, what would be the breakdown along ideological lines, maybe between Shia and Sunni, and within the Sunni, which of them are Salafis? And are there different accreditation boards for these ideological breakdowns?
1: So, first of all, uh, you know, we did not, in our study, we weren't able to, because, you know, people have to respond to surveys or interviews, and so there are no Shia Shia schools. And there's two or three, and that's one of the things that, hmm, there's more, oh, so, uh, so that's the other challenges. And so we didn't get the response rate so one of the things that we show in our findings is that once that's one of the shortcomings of our uh, of our uh, of our study um, we did not ask from ideological lines whether you're Salafi and so on uh, I don't know what response rate we would have gotten um, what I would say uh, someone who you know's been part of the Islamic schools movement now for 20 years right is uh, that it's there are a very small number of schools, a very, very small number of schools that break down along those pure ideological lines. Are there people that are, say, Salafi or more conservative? Or are there people that are schools that are more liberal? They're in a school, yes. But I think that... uh, the diversity and the economics of trying to put this school together make it very different for you to have a pure Salafi school. I don't think within a, for example, in Indianapolis, you wouldn't be able to get enough liberals together, for example, and I hate to use these terms, but liberals together to put together a liberal school in it just isn't, because the number of Americans is 1.1%, 1. 1, 1. right? And of that, only near, less than 5% at a very high level send their children to Islamic schools. And then of that number, a huge number can't afford to send their... So we're not big enough to have these kinds of things that exist in say in, say, European countries, where I was born in England there you are able to have a Bengali masjid then a Pakistani masjid and a those. But in, in the United States, just because it's a huge country, we're very few people, and we're spread off along. Uh, you know, it's hard-pressed to find another person in your community that sort of has, has the say, you know, likes the level of sugar in your tea at the same level within the Muslim community. It's, we're very diverse, and that's beautiful, uh, but from a nonprofit institutionalization level,
0: Very challenging.
2: I think, again, Charlie sums it up very nicely.
1: Okay, great. (laughs) So
0: now we're going to get to the lady right in front, and we should have time for one more question. I'm going to go to, I tell you what, I'll go to that man right there and then the lady in front, if we can do it. I can't make any promises.
6: Uh, Sue Smock, first I'd like to go back to something that you said earlier. There is now reliable data that indicate that the main reason, a main reason, that uh, philanthropies close or close in certain areas is because of money. The American banks won't give them money, and that's back to what you said earlier about government regulations. So that's just a point. My question is a very dull question. Would you define the schools you're talking about, for example, they are K through 12 locally accredited. And what else?
2: Uh, self-definition. We went by those schools that thought of themselves as Islamic uh, to begin with. Because I think that's the operating definition of even being a Muslim in the US, right? Do you consider yourself a Muslim? Because who defines you as a Muslim? That's something we delve in depth in our book. Uh, because, uh, again, if you bring global discourses of Islam into the US, it's a, it's a complicated scene. Because some groups say, you're not a Muslim, you're not a Muslim. So we said, let's not get into that mess. We're not here to judge anybody or any group as Muslim, non-Muslim. That's not our job as either scholars or even as individuals. You know, we we stand uh, on on the same plane. Uh, So we said, do you consider yourself a Muslim school? Or even individually, do you consider yourself a Muslim? If yes, you're in. If you don't consider yourself a Muslim uh, school, no. Uh, So I hope that clarifies.
1: And just to give you, this is largely from a narrative perspective, right? Media shows that if you want to show a Muslim that's good, that you guys will be less afraid of, him. if you give him a glass of wine, which is not permitted, that, that makes it easier. But if you find someone uh, in media, in a movie, if you find a Muslim that happens to pray, people are more afraid of him. That's the dichotomy, right? So when we were thinking about, we were saying, let's let since everybody's afraid of the Muslims that pray, Let's focus on the schools that show children how to pray, right? Because that's the, that's the discourse that we wanted to sort of answer.
0: Interesting. Okay, so we're sort of into the speed round. So that man and then that lady, and I think we can get you both in. As long as you don't take advantage of my saying, you could give a lot of comments. <laughs> Thank you, sir. My name is Sami Kochak. I am Imam of Al Azhar Mosque in Fairfax, Virginia. A short question.
2: Is the Muslim community... Satisfied with uh, a kind of academic level in Islamic schools, or or and from uh, religious education, Islamic values education, uh, are they satisfied? Or do you have some suggestions or advices for all of us
5: uh, to increase both of them, Islamic education methodologies maybe much better, or academic level to make it better? Yes, thank you.
1: So I'll say, and we didn't deal with this in our research, but I can tell you that uh, by and large, people that send their children to Islamic school are, based on our research, based on the academics, because they overperform in the districts that they're in. So if you send your child to a, in your school, research shows that more likely than not, your children academically, in English, math, science, and all that, to do better than, say, the public schools in Fairfax County and even the other private schools. So... On that level, there's a satisfaction. I think broadly within the Islamic school movement, including amongst people like you and those that are working there, there's a great dissatisfaction with uh, Islamic education in in our sector, uh, and largely because we lack the resources to build an accrediting system that they've done. But we don't, you know, you need curriculum, you need research, and so on. And we're lacking that. And so there are publishing houses that produce this stuff but many have been produced a long time ago, haven't been updated. So there is that uh, challenge. What we argue in our book, and what we argue, Muslim nonprofit organizations, and I would say all nonprofit organizations, have to be better nonprofit organizations. So if you choose to raise money professionally, rather than, as someone recently said, and I won't, uh, the Muslims in the room will get it, rather than the beat down banquet. You're going to raise more money if you do a professional. So there are professional ways in which you run the nonprofits and Muslim nonprofits have been focused on the art of educating children and are trying to be very good at that. I think they're less successful on being successful Muslim as successful nonprofit organizations. So I, I would argue that that's something yeah, that's needed. If
2: I may quickly piggyback on that point. Uh, interview stands out for me in my mind uh, with a board member of uh, Islamic Center and board member of the uh, school. In Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, he was a very traditional, very religiously pious man. And he said something which contradicts what Sharek said. He's like, uh, why should I file my returns to, you know, uh, IRS? I'm answerable to God, not to human beings. So I think if that should change is our argument. Because, of course, your accountability, your answerability to your higher power, of course, needs to be part of the equation. But you need to show proof that you're actually spending the money properly. Right, So I think greater professionalization across the board is something we feel uh, generally based on our reading of, of the schools and other institutions. More professionalization, more training, more professional development for teachers, for others, I think is, is always welcome. And I think that's something we feel schools should really focus on.
1: Although the other thing I would argue is yeah. that he's probably the outlier. I also think Islamic schools yeah. and our, our, our books suggest this that accountability uh, is the way for legitimacy. But there are people like that. But again, it's a very diverse community.
0: Okay, last question. We've got time. Letty, right in front. Did you still have a question? Yes. Oh, okay, good. And this will be the last one we've got.
3: Hello, my name is Sarah. Um, I went to uh, an Islamic uh, weekend school uh, about uh, when I was 14 years old. Uh, so I went there for most of my childhood, actually, up until 14, and then learning through other and the, others in the Muslim community. So I'm basically an Islamic uh, school dropout because um, of some things that I've seen in Islamic schools. And I've seen in the Muslim community, people prefer to actually study the Quran in their homes um, than to study in these environments. Um, so what I wanted to ask is, Islam, as a religion that's innately gender segregated, um, what is being done for women's education? Because I remember at 14 years old being taught that if I don't have sex with my husband, I will be cursed by the angels until the morning. Um, and this is being taught by two 13- and 14-year-old girls. Um, I believe that's wrong. So I was just wondering what your, what your thoughts are on that.
2: Thanks for raising that question. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, there are, of course, issues with regards to the kinds of interpretation of Islam that we are seeing in, in the U.S., the kinds of practices that might exist in uh, weekend schools or even K-12 through 12 schools. And we did not study the weekend schools again. So we focused purely on K-12. through 12. Um, So I think uh, there isn't, from what I know, I mean, I go to a, again, let me lean back on my anecdote from Republic of California, which is uh, not necessarily a representation entirely of the country. But I go to a mosque in Altadena, uh, which has predominantly African Americans, uh, founded by African American Muslims. And I think, at least in that community, I don't see that level of gender segregation, right? So, again, uh, I don't want to overstate or overclaim anything, but I think there are uh, movements, there are individuals, groups within. Uh, at least I'm very familiar with in California, uh, probably D.C. as well. I lived in D.C. for about two years before I moved there, that are challenging these uh, norms, which are deeply, deeply ingrained. Like these are traditional, again, as we said, these are traditional norms which are being challenged at a small level, in some, some cases in a, at a deeper level. And again, I think uh, these changes should happen within the community by women, women like yourself and others and those who are part of the community. And I think the the discussion, the debates, the fights should happen, I think, uh, because without that, uh, there is no point uh, pointing fingers or, you know, uh, if you want change, I think, as, as cliched as it sounds, it has to happen within, from within and by people who are, uh, you know, who have conviction and who are like, okay, I don't believe in this. I will stand up for what I believe is right, provided, you know, and use the resources within the tradition. I think there are enough resources in our reading of Islam to challenge these deeply held norms. You don't have to go outside of the tradition or even abandon it. And again, my mother, who passed away three years ago, was a high school teacher. I'm a product of two high school teachers in India. Uh, they taught Urdu their entire lives. Uh, one of the few women in my mother, uh, mother's side of the family who worked, and she worked for about 45 years, dedicated high school teacher. And of course, she faced similar issues, Right, India being much more conservative than, uh, than the U.S., of course. So, but I think she found her own ways uh, to deal with these issues and challenge norms. And in her own way, I think she was a quote-unquote revolutionary, whatever you know, that might imply. So I think uh, uh, it's I think much more complicated. And again, I'm, I don't want to speak for women. I, don't, I, I empathize with your struggles and with your uh, you know, challenges you faced. Uh, all I can say is more power to you, and uh, uh, I hope you know this this movement continues in terms of addressing the challenges that exist.
1: And but I think some questions that come out of the gender related first of all we didn't study uh, uh, weekend schools which are really products of Islamic centers they're programs of Islamic centers yeah. so they don't fall within our broader study. And you know, Islamic centers are not regulated, right? And so, so now I'll say something that, you know, <laughs> don't throw anything at me. But, you know, regulations sometimes help. And in Islamic schools, they are regulated. And so if this kind of stuff is taught and you're reported to the local county and so on, you're accountable for that. And that's this performance accountability that we talk about in terms of legitimacy, so in Islamic schools. But um, the second point I'll make is that within Islamic schools, I think the gender movement has been much more s- stronger, uh, largely because if you look at predominantly Islamic school principals are women. If you look at the number of people that teach in Islamic schools, they're largely women. If you come to the Islam- Islamic Islam Education Forum every year, Easter weekend in Chicago, I'd say 90%, if uh, you know, and it's something that high, are women, and men are small part. They're... they're there are discriminatory, gender-related issues why that is the case, which we can talk about. But there is, what I would say broadly, and I'd say this as someone who, as an attorney, have been a domestic violence attorney, set up a DV program in Indiana. As a Muslim leader, I've, I've set up a women's fund Uh, And domestic violence. So, this is an area that I've, as a practitioner, not as a scholar, have spent 20 years of my life within the Muslim community working on gender rights. And what I would say, and I can, uh, is that the challenge of gender within the Muslim community exists you know, between the segregation issues and so on. But the challenges with gender in this country still exist. And the idea that somehow Muslim Americans are going to be different than Americans is is a challenge, right? So sometimes uh, what I say to my co-advocates within the Muslim uh, movement, that if we just think about uh, gender discrimination within the Muslim community as uniquely Muslim, we won't be able to have the successes if we don't contextualize it within the broader and that's why we've argued in our book that if you think of islamic schools as very particularly islamic you're not going to be able to reform them unless you think of them as broader private nonprofit schools so what i would argue and i think you're right i've seen and i've i have spent and i have spoken to the uh, to women uh, as as their attorney and fought for them and i've heard the horrific stories in the Islamic centers and imam, but but I think generalizing them to the broader, twelve hundred or so Islamic centers is pro- twenty one hundred now. We have a uh, growth uh, is problematic and doesn't do justice, because what happens, and this happens in Indiana of the 56, is if, you, if we don't make, well, in Indiana, we were able to bring a coalition of Islamic centers to create a women's fund. And the way we did it is to say, this is a problem, it, it's a problem in this country, and we as a faith community have to solve it. So when we took this issue away from the particular and made it broader, we were able to bring in others. Because when you're, the problem is if we attack, um, everybody in the community, uh, in the Muslim community, we, will, we won't have the allies. But I think I would echo more power to you uh, for, for the struggles that you've had. And you know, as a father of an amazing daughter and son and a brother, you know, this is an issue that Muslims and Americans have to solve. There's no way that we can progress as a country or as a people unless we deal with the issues uh, of gender discrimination and
0: inequality. Well, thank you. I'm glad to say the only extreme thing I heard from a Cato perspective was regulations sometimes <laughs> help. Um, we can talk about that later. Uh, but I want to thank, thank Sabit and Shark for coming today and for the book and everybody who came and was watching online. And now I'm glad to welcome you all to Head Upstairs. You'll go out this hallway, go upstairs, and we have lunch in the Winter Garden, and we can all talk about this some more. So thank you very much.